Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. You can also follow along on page 8 in your bulletin. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, today we're going to begin a series on the life of Jesus uh, through the gospel according to Luke. And uh, as we saw in the reading today, the first four verses of Luke's account of the gospel, it, it says that he's writing to someone called, that he calls most excellent Theophilus. Now there are scholars who say that that's a double entendre. Uh, the word Theophilus actually means lover of God. So some scholars will say, well, he could be writing uh, to Christians everywhere uh, throughout history. But it's that adjective in the title, most excellent. He's likely writing to a real person. And that person is a person of status, a person of, of rank, which means that he's writing to an educated person, a person of wealth. In other words, he's expecting this book to be read by educated people by people who have wealth. This is not some sort of hokey gospel that he's trying to kind of pull the wool over your eyes. And, and Luke himself, you need to know, he was a professional. He was a doctor. Uh, and so he knows how the educated think. He understands how the wealthy think. Remember, the term gospel means news. It means good news. When we get news as educated people, as people who have status and, and are educated and are, are professionals, when we receive news, especially in our world today, we're always asking about the source. Where did you get this news? Because we want credible news. So when we walk into the church, and, and I know, I mean, I'm a pastor here, I know, people come in, there's a bit of skepticism, especially if you're young in the church or if you're new to the church. But Luke is saying this, Theophilus, you're an educated person. You're, you're a person of culture, status. I want you to know, verse two, there were eyewitnesses who knew Jesus, who knew who he was, what he said, what he taught, what he did. And in verse three, it says, these eyewitnesses handed this news, they delivered this news to us. Verse three, I followed all of it very closely. 
everything from the beginning. I've been just so consumed by this. He went to the eyewitnesses. He spoke to the people. He saw things for himself. He followed all very closely. And now he says, I compiled it together. I'm writing an orderly account. Luke begins with the birth of Jesus and goes all the way through to his death and resurrection. It's the most comprehensive understanding of Jesus in all the gospels, I believe. And he says, I'm writing this for you. Now you need to know, Jesus' ministry, what he said, what he did, it was, it was all very public. Thousands of eyewitnesses from all over saw him, and, and they're the ones who handed this word down. They handed their testimony down. The Greek word for that is paradidomai. You need to know that that word is a very technical term. It's a technical process of passing down information in an oral culture that would stand as a, as a testimony on the witness stand. Without any alteration, it is as you saw, without any revision, uh, as a formal account. So this is a testimony, the gospel is a testimony of public record. Now think about this, if even one person mentioned in these gospels, if even one witness or eyewitness who was there says, well, it didn't really happen that way, it's kind of embellished, this whole thing goes under. Thousands of witnesses if even one person discounted what, what was written here, Christianity scholars say, these are secular scholars say, Christianity wouldn't have made it out of the first century. And yet the church thrived. Thousands of people who saw Jesus, some of them embraced him, some of them hated, hated him, and, and they, they're in these testimonies. Look, Luke is saying, I've talked to them, I saw this, uh, they gave me their eyewitness account, and it's all true. It's all real. Why did he do it? In verse four, he says, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. He says, I didn't include everything, but what I did give you, it's that you would know Jesus, the real Jesus, the authentic, genuine, real Jesus. And uh, so that you, what you read is true. Now, there are, there's some content before what we just read. Um, chapter one is fairly lengthy. Chapter two is fairly lengthy. We're gonna come back to that during the season of Advent because it talks about the birth of Jesus. So we're gonna start this journey. We call this series Understanding Jesus. We're gonna start this journey with the end of chapter two and it begins with Jesus really as a preteen. It's the only recorded passage of him as a preteen in all the gospels. And this is as him as a 12-year-old. And we see very early who he is, and then ultimately how we can apply these truths, this truth of who he is uh, in our lives. First, we're gonna look at who he is. In verse 41, every year, it says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. You see, most families during this time, they went to Jerusalem for this feast. But in verse 42, Jesus, he's 12. It's very important. It's a special journey for Jesus. Why? Because when a Jewish boy turns 13, uh, he's treated as, he's assumes, he assumes the role of an adult. And so that year prior, when he's 12, he becomes an apprentice to his father in those ancient times. 
It was a time of spiritual and religious training for a boy at the age of 12. And there he develops a very, very special relationship with his father, a very intense relationship with his father as he prepares to become a man. For example, Joseph, this is the man who raised Jesus as his earthly father. He was a a carpenter. So during this time, you would imagine, he is training Jesus. Jesus is learning under Joseph at this age to become a carpenter. But he would have also received what it means to be a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish young man. Uh, he's training in religious religiosity in the temple. And so he's going to this feast of the Passover at Jerusalem at the age of 12. It's very special for him. He gets to hang with his dad all the time. He, his father would have taken great pains, the time to explain the Passover to Jesus, the temple to Jesus, what it means to observe this feast, how you observe it, its meaning, its significance. And Jesus, he'd be spending a lot of time with his father, walking with him, talking with him, dialoguing with him, maybe even kind of talking through confusion and, 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 and learning under him, and he, and he likely did. But, but in verse 43, while uh, his parents are returning home, you got to understand these parents, I mean, these, these families were very, very large. And it was likely that in a, in a case where like the feast of the Passover, your entire extended family is going to travel with you, right? And so it's, it's a journey. We're talking dozens of people. They, they're, they're, at this stage, they're packing everything up and they left. Imagine when you're coming back from a concert or from a game here uh, and you've got your entire neighborhood with you. You know, it's, it's their entire village. We're talking dozens and dozens of people and everyone's walking back to their cars. You just kind of assume, oh, my kid, we're all together. He's probably walking with other children or, or maybe some of his relatives or, or some of our friends. You got the men walking together. You got the women walking together. Some of the children are kind of walking together depending on their age and stage and, and everyone's kind of walking and heading over to the same place. Imagine if you're walking back to your cars, you just assume that everybody's doing it together. But Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. Verse 44, thinking that he's in the company uh, and tr- they traveled for a day. And, and they began to look for Jesus because as the day kind of rolled by, they're like, we haven't seen our son. Like, he must be with one of these guys. So they're kind of walking back. It's assumed to be the case. And they find he's not among his relatives. He's not among his friends. Or their friends. Verse 45, when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem for him. Why wouldn't he come back with us is their question. That's what they're thinking. Verse 46, three days go by. They find Jesus in the temple's courts. He's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them, and he's asking them questions. And verse 47, everyone is amazed at his understanding. Everyone's amazed at his answers. In other words, Jesus is so wise. At the age of 12, he's all of a sudden, he's so wise, so insightful. They're amazed. But verse 48, his parents, they're astonished. Not in a good way. It, says, it implies his mother, Mary, she's upset. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I were anxiously searching for you. And there it is. Not enough for her to say, I was anxiously searching for you. He says, your father and I were upset. How could you? You're 12. This was that year where you're supposed to be close to your father. You should have been hanging right by your father, walking with your father, knowing your father, understanding your father, listening to your father, talking to your father, dialoguing, asking through questions and, and apprenticing under him. You go, you're supposed to go through intense religious training, a spiritual kind of like revival for you in your life. Why, why are you treating us this way? You're supposed to be apprenticing under your father 
and really getting a sense of your calling and purpose and meaning here, what does Jesus say? He says, Mom, I was. I am. Notice Mary says, your father, lowercase f, your father and I are, are, are upset with you. We're disappointed. Jesus responds in verse 49, why are you searching for me? In other words, why are you so mad? Didn't you know that I had to be in my capital F in my father's house? Mary's saying, how could you do this to your father? This is that stage, this is that age where you're supposed to be really, really like getting, to, getting in with him and learning under him in a really intense way and you develop a really special relationship with your father. How could you do this to your father? And Jesus replies, mom, I am doing that right here. Why do you think I'm here? Why wouldn't I be here? I'm 12. I'm here to train. I'm here to learn. To be near my father, to, to walk with him, to learn from him, to dialogue with him, to apprentice under him, to grow even closer to the father while I understand my calling and my purpose and my meaning. This is that year I'm at my father's house. I'm tending to his business. I'm speaking to uh, the people under his care. I'm apprenticing under him, you see. And look, everyone around him, they're just perplexed by him. They see his wisdom and his insight is just growing. Verse 47, the people at the temple are amazed. Verse 48, his parents are astonished. Verse 50, but they did not, this is his parents, they didn't understand what he was saying to them. They're confused. Why? And there's two reasons. One, Jesus is calling God as his father. And secondly, he calls God as his father. They're both incredibly remarkable. You need to know this. First, he calls God his father. There's no other faith, no other religion that focuses on that more than the Jesus of the Bible. You need to know that if you know anything about the Muslim tradition, the Muslim faith, in the Muslim Quran, there are 400 words that refer to God, that are attributed to God, that describe God. Not one of them ascribes to God as father. Even Judaism uses the word father to, do, to refer to God occasionally, but it's, it's more like in, in a general way, like, like a forefather, like an ancient. But you, and you never see accounts of individuals in the Jewish culture praying to God as a personal father. So Jesus claiming, he's claiming something here that no one ever in the Jewish culture, no one ever in Jewish history has ever claimed. He's saying, yeah, I'm 12. I'm supposed to be with the father. I'm in Jerusalem to learn under him, to grow under him. And you're mad. Why? You're confused because I didn't come home with you. But that's because I was with my father. I was with God. I was learning under him and growing under him and walking with him and dialoguing with him, tending to his business and with his people, understanding his plan, under, just receiving and understanding and grasping his burden. I have a relationship with God that is so unique and so special, deeper than what anyone could ever have. God is my father. Well, that makes Jesus God's son. And that means that Jesus is claiming to be king. He's claiming to be God's heir. That God is, what is God doing in the temple? He's training him to rule. But secondly, God is his father. If you're coming from an Eastern mindset or an Eastern-minded culture, um, uh, what I'm about to tell you is probably not that fascinating. Um, but if you're rooted in Western culture, I have a lot of friends rooted, uh, upbringing is purely just Western civilization, civilized culture. Uh, they find what I'm about to say very, very fascinating, um, and you're going to find it even more interesting. Um, you see, in, in other parts of the world, in the Eastern world, 
in the Middle Eastern world, even the Near Eastern world, in these countries, loyalty to your parents, even if they're wrong, even if it goes completely against what you desire for yourself, your parents are always right. And it is your ultimate duty, it is your priority to obey them. So when Mary says, why did you treat us like this? What he's saying is, how do we raise you? I mean, we've been searching for you. We are in great distress. The language, when he says, we're anxiously searching for you, that language is really, you have distressed us, Jesus. You are disappointing us. This is so disappointing. And what Jesus says is this, look, my relationship with God is my ultimate priority. My relationship with God transcends every other relationship that I have on this earth, including my relationship with you. It's deeper, it's more intense than any other relationship I will ever have in my life. He is my father. I came to be close to him. But then look, in verse 51, then right at the end of this passage, the text says, then he went down, this is Jesus, he went down to Nazareth and, uh, and to be with his parents and, he, and, he, and to be obedient to them. You see that? On one hand, Jesus claims to be God's son. There's Godship, there's sonship there. But then on the other hand, look at his humility. <laughs> look at his submission. He didn't have to. He chooses to obey his parents on earth. It wasn't because he was bound to a cultural thing, because the gospel transcends that. It wasn't because he's bound to a social thing, because his parents were tr- uh, uh, pressuring him. The gospel transcends that. Purely out of his love, his respect for them, it's a choice. In a sense, what he's saying is, look, I don't have to obey you because God is my father. I'm the ancient of days. That means, that makes me older than you. I mean, it kind of makes sense why they wouldn't understand him, right? But then he says, but then I choose to submit. I choose to obey because I love you. Wow, that's remarkable. In Jesus, you see this perfect combination of boldness and humility, of majesty and meekness. We're just seeing the beginning of the perfect embodiment of every ideal characteristic of kingliness in the person of Jesus. We're just getting a glimpse of that. Luke, the author, he's masterfully kind of put together. We're just getting a glimpse of the perfect embodiment of the perfect person of Jesus. The ideal characteristic of perfect kingliness. Boldness, powerfulness, and yet utter meekness and humility. You know, women, when you talk to single women, you say, well, what are you looking for in a man? What do they say? I want a person who's really confident and yet what? Really humble. Not somebody that's not arrogant. When you talk to men, you say, what kind of woman, you know, single man, what are you looking for in a woman? They say, oh, I want a person who uh, may be super attractive, incredibly beautiful, and yet I want them to be humble and not really into themselves. We hear that all the time. So when you talk to each other, I'm sure you say things like that, right? What are you saying? You're looking for perfect, the perfect embodiment of kingliness, the ideal characteristics of kingliness. And what Luke is saying is you can only find it in the person of Jesus. Now, what do we learn from this? How do you apply this? One, I'm gonna give you a couple things. One, that makes Jesus incredibly frustrating. It makes him very confusing, difficult to understand. On one hand, you've got the educated people, you've got the scholars, they're confused by his brilliance. This 12-year-old boy is running theological circles around them and they're just amazed. They don't even know him and yet they find him intriguing, they find him special. They say, this is a special young man. But on the other hand, look at Mary, look at Joseph. 
they know Jesus. They're close to Jesus. They love Jesus, and yet they're confused too. In fact, they're upset. It's bad enough that he was lost for a day. It's bad enough that it took three days for them to find him. But when they find him, he's fine. Doesn't even apologize. You see? He's just in the temple. Not a worry in the world. What's the point? There are people in this room right now. You're exploring who Jesus is, and you're intrigued. And uh, you're starting to see that Jesus is maybe more than just a teacher, more than a, a religious leader. For a while, Jesus was just that. He was just a good person. He was just a, a moral leader, a religious leader, a good teacher. Uh, he was just that. Uh, but now, um, those kind of boxes that you're trying to fit Jesus into, they don't seem to fit anymore. Those attributions They don't apply. They're insufficient to describe who Jesus is. You're starting to to broaden your scope of who Jesus is. Notice, uh, Jesus says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand. They were confused. They were disturbed. This is the beginning of the book of Luke. I mean, if you wanted to build a heroic narrative, is this how you would start with Jesus as a 12-year-old boy and everyone around him doesn't get him? And then at the end of the book, At the end of the book of Luke, Jesus is dead. And you've got his two disciples, two of his disciples, they're confused. They're trying to make sense of everything that happened. And they're walking down this road and they encounter a stranger. And it's Jesus, the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And and they're like, well, we thought Jesus was going to be the chosen one. We thought he was going to be the one who's going to come to redeem Israel, redeem the world as king. But then he died and we're trying to make sense out of this. It doesn't make any sense. And some women, they went to see him in the tomb and now he's gone. And that totally doesn't make any sense to us. They're so confused. And Jesus says what? Don't you know I had to suffer? I had to die. In both cases, everyone's confused. But Jesus is calm. Doesn't apologize. He says, in fact, he says, I had to do this. In other words, what he's really saying is this. A lot of you come to me, Jesus. A lot of you come to Jesus for a lot of reasons. But you need to come to him as king. Because if you come to him for anything other than as king, you're going to have your own agenda. You're going to have all these plans. And Jesus basically, he's like, basically all of you have all these plans for me. But I came to be your king. That's who I am. And that's why you're so confused. Because you don't want a king. You want an order taker. You want a waiter. Jesus, you're supposed to be here. Jesus, you're supposed to be here. Jesus, where are you in my life when I need you here? But my plan is to obey my father. That is my priority. That's why I'm here. Look, some of us, we read the Bible and we pray and Jesus isn't answering Or you don't like the answers. That's even worse. You don't like what he's saying in the Bible. You don't agree. It disturbs you because either Jesus is not speaking or because he is speaking. And you don't like it. You don't agree. You say, well, I disagree. I think God is more like this, more like that. Even though the Bible says to the contrary. Let me say it like this. A God that disagrees with you. A God that confuses you. A God that upsets you even. That's proof that he is not the product of any of your desires. He is totally separate from your desires. And that's the only kind of God that can actually transform you. That's the only kind of God that can actually challenge you. That's the only kind of God that can actually save you. 
Think about this. Only a God that doesn't cater to your desires, only a God that confuses you, disagrees with you, sometimes angers you, that's the only kind of God that when you feel ugly about yourself, when you feel guilty and just ashamed and you just want to go and hide and, and not come out of that rock, only a God like that can say, but I made you and I saved you and you are beautiful to me. Only a God that confuses you and disagrees with you. That's the only kind of God that can actually change you and shape you. Jesus says, hey, Mary, I'm the son of God. To his disciples, he's saying, I'm your king. I'm the king even over death. Just because I don't answer your prayers on your terms, it doesn't make me powerless or unwise. It makes me completely separate, completely other, wholly other, completely unique. Another word for that is set apart. I'm holy. Oh, and the angels, when they look to God, what do they say? You are holy, holy, holy. It is a superlative. There's nobody more unique and separate and holy other than you. So you're going to either have to reject him or you're going to have to crown him. It will be, I mean, the one thing you can't dare say is, well, he's just a good person. He must have been just a nice guy, a good teacher, a good leader. By the way, when you are confused, what is God doing? Jesus is just pointing out those areas of unbelief in your life. Areas where you just don't trust Jesus. That's what he's pointing out. Jesus, yes, he disturbs people who, doesn't, who don't get him, but he often disturbs, disturbs people who do get him, even more sometimes. Because Jesus is trying to dismantle all these boxes that you're trying to force him into, all these categories or, or classes you're trying to place him into based on your expectations or, you know, where you, where you wanted him to be something else or somewhere else. A lot of us, we still view Jesus the way we viewed him when we were 12. When we were 12. And it's confusing. That's why it's confusing for us. Who is he? Who is he for real? Secondly, we need to replace uh, those expectations that we have of Jesus, we need, re- we need to replace those expectations with trust. Here's Mary. She's upset. Why? Because Jesus not only doesn't do what she expected him to do, but he's not even bothered by it. He's not even apologetic about it. He, in fact, he says, I have to do this. I mean, we say, well, that's really not wise. That's really not caring. That's really not loving. But he said it at the temple in the beginning of the book, and he says it the re- after the resurrection at the end of the book. What does that mean? It's all part of his plan. It's all intentional. It's all part of this great plan to save and to redeem my people. I had to do it. Why? Because I care. Because I love you. Because I'm wise. That's why I'm doing it. That's why I'm here. We tend to say, well, I gave my life to Jesus, my precious life. I gave it to Jesus. And I look back on my life and wow, I realize Jesus has been there for me all along. And he hears me even now. And he's going to be there. He's going to be there for me forever. And so I'm going to obey him because when I do, God's going to bless me. Listen, friends, you're going to be really disappointed. Some of you, you don't understand what it's like to be disappointed by Jesus. Because right now, things are going really well in your life. But one day, you're going to be like Mary. Mary was asking a very, very visceral but honest question. How can you treat me like this? I love you. I raised you. How dare you treat me like this? 
I love you, I serve you, I gave myself to you, and it seems like you don't really care, you don't really love me. In Mark chapter 4, the gospel according to Mark, there's a squall. These disciples are out on a boat, and there's this huge storm. And Jesus, with his disciples, they're in this boat, and he's sleeping. And there's this huge squall. And some of those disciples, I mean, they were fishermen. They understand the difference between, oh, it's a small storm, and like, this is like life or death. And they're screaming, and they're crying out. What do they say? Jesus, don't you care? In other words, they're asking the same question. Are you wise? Are you caring? Are you loving? We're going to die here. And what does Jesus do? He gets up. It's pretty much like, oh, he calms the storm. And then he looks at them and he says, do you still have no faith? In other words, what he's saying is, do you think that just because I love you, that means I'm not going to put you through stuff? I'm not going to let you go through stuff? Do you think that just because I love you, storms are not going to happen in your life? That you're not going to suffer? Don't just trust in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust his word. You need to replace your expectations of Jesus with trust. Thirdly, verse 51, the text says, well, then Jesus goes down to Nazareth uh, with his parents, and then he was obedient to them. Why? And you need to know why, because that's going to answer why we need to trust Jesus. Even when he's totally confusing and totally upsetting, sometimes frustrating and disappointing, think about why Jesus stayed back at the temple. You see, yes, Jesus went to Jerusalem with Joseph, his father. But how was he able to navigate the temple courts? How was he able to sit and hang with these teachers and be on the level with them theologically like that? And the reason is, you know, he, he's training with Joseph. But remember, Joseph was training him in Joseph's profession and to be a faithful religious Jew. A good Jewish young man. Every year, I need you to come to the temple. This is what you do. Here's the meaning of the Passover. This is what history has shown us. This is what God's word has told us about the Passover. This is what we believe. Here's how you do it, step by step. Why does Jesus say, but I had to be here? It's because he's getting his real training from his real father. And his real father is teaching Jesus about the real temple. And the real Passover, the real meaning of the Passover. And so you can imagine, as Jesus observed the Passover feast, this real father is saying, you see that lamb? That lamb points to you. You are the lamb of God. You see how they spilled his blood? Your blood's going to be spilled. You see that temple? One day there'll be no more temples because you are the ultimate temple. And he's 12. That's a lot of pressure. For 12-year-old friends, in our generation, we try to do everything to shield our children from suffering. We don't want to put them through any type of intensity in their lives. We just assume one day they'll just be mature enough to handle suffering. Think about how foolish that is. We just assume that I'm just going to protect them as much as possible from the realities and the harshness of life, and then one day they'll be old enough to kind of brave it on their own. Really? We don't teach them to suffer well. We don't teach them. We don't put them through any type of intense training. And we're creating, really it's not our intent, but we're creating a generation of selfish, fearful people. But look at Jesus here. He's learning about the lamb. He's learning what it means to carry the cross. Since he was 12, that's how God was raising him. For you. And then he goes home and he just obeys his parents. He just obeys his parents. Since he's 12, since the age of 12, I mean, he had, that means he had some knowledge that he was going to die for God's people. Throughout the Bible, whenever you see the number 12, 
That represents the whole of God's church. There were 12 tribes in the Old Testament. This continued, moves into the New Testament. You have 12 disciples in the New Testament. It represents the whole church. In other words, Jesus Christ obeyed the Father, and then he went back and obeyed his earthly parents. He did everything that we were supposed to do, obey God, obey, just love and submit to one another. He's just 12, but he's already representing his people, living the life that we should live, fulfilling every law because we are that selfish and we are so fearful. There's this place in John chapter 7. It's kind of like an obscure passage right before this really major feast, another one of the major feasts that the Jews uh, were called to observe. Just after Jesus feeds the 5,000, now his brothers, who were kind of skeptical of him at first, now they want to show him off. We've got to go to the big city. We, gotta sh- we, gotta, we need people to see who you are. You just fed five. Th- what a miracle. And what, how fitting. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. We need to go there and show you off. And Jesus says, essentially, he's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm about. But then later on in the text, I mean, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the three main feasts observed in the entire Old Testament. What do you see? Jesus appears, he kind of pops in midway through and he's teaching there. Down to the smallest detail, Jesus fulfills every law, every feast, every ceremony, every ritual, not just to obey. He literally is the end point of all those things. Why don't we observe those rituals? Why don't we go to synagogues? Why don't we go to the temple anymore? Because Jesus is the ultimate temple. He is the fulfillment of every one of those rituals and ceremonies. What remains is the moral law, and he, we're called to still obey the moral law, and yet he's the fulfillment of every one of those two, and he fulfills those laws. You see that? Down to the smallest detail, those laws point to him, and he totally is submissive, totally submits to the Father. He obeys. And yet here we are. We get so confused. But Jesus, at the age of 12, he knew he would suffer to some degree, for us, for his people, and yet he still obeyed, still submissive, in full, since he was a child. Since he was a child, we can trust Jesus. Where do you get the power for that trust? Look at Jesus as a child at the temple. Loses his earthly father, doesn't bat an eye. At the temple, he knew he would suffer. Never complains, doesn't bat an eye. In the storm with his disciples, Storm is raging. They're terrified. They're crying out. Jesus doesn't bat an eye, literally taking a nap. He's calm. But on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice he doesn't say, my father, my father, why? Because now he lost his heavenly father. It's the only place in the entire gospels where Jesus doesn't refer to God as his own father. You know that? What he's saying is, I've now lost my heavenly father, my real father. I've lost God. This is the center of my life. This is the centerpiece of my heart. My heart has just been ripped out of me, essentially. And look, in the Old Testament, you have a lot of prophets. They cry out to God. You know what they cried out to God when they did? The Old Testament prophets? A lot of times when they cried out, they said, essentially, why? Why do I have to go through this? Another way of saying that is, why are you treating me like this? I'm serving you. I'm loving you. I'm worshiping you. I'm teaching other people about you. But in the New Testament, you never see the apostles do that. Not after the resurrection. Neither Paul nor Peter nor John, you don't see them complaining against God or questioning God. Not once. There was only one, and he was on the cross. Jesus cries out, why? Why have you forsaken me? 
Another way of saying that is, why are you treating me like this? On the cross, I mean, on the cross, he wasn't calm. Jesus is falling apart, struggling and groaning, not because of the physical pain per se. He has lost the center of his life. He has lost his father. Totally devoted to the father, and he has lost the father. The wrath of his father, the wrath of God, is pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. And did you know there's a storm then? Jesus was riding a storm on the cross. The sky grew dark completely. There was an earthquake. The temple curtain that divided the most holy place, which was always represented God's presence, and the people outside just tore from top to bottom. Literally, the world was coming undone. And there Jesus is on the cross riding this hurricane, riding the hurricane of the wrath of God. And he's saying, God has left me for dead. He's abandoned me. No one's going to care for me. Who's going to love me? Who's going to save me? No one. You know why? So that he would never abandon you because he cares that much for his people. He loves his people that much. That's why the apostles, they never complained. It's why, I mean, they were intimate with God. They had access with God in a way that no one, access with God in a way that no one would ever have. The sovereign God, the king, and so they trusted. And so even though they suffered and they suffered, they responded always with rejoice. Why? Because Jesus Christ gave up his own sonship the Apostle Paul says, so that we could be sons. Jesus Christ gave up access to God so that we can have access to God. Jesus Christ gave up intimacy with God so that we could have intimacy with God in a way that, that transcends every other relationship in our lives. Jesus Christ received the storm and the darkness and the quake and the wrath of God. Why? So that we would receive the embrace of God and the love of God. And because Jesus, he didn't abandon us as he suffered the ultimate lostness, the ultimate separation of God, the Father, any lostness that you experience because you sometimes feel distant from God for whatever reason, any lostness that you experience here, Jesus is here with you. He's never gonna let you go. He's never gonna abandon you. Look, some of us here, I mean, we suffered a lot of disappointments. In the last 11 years, my entire life. I mean, suffered lots of disappointments. You could write a book, I'm sure, in your lives of just your disappointments. I can write a book definitely about my disappointments in life. My father was murdered when I was five. My family, we suffered a lot. We weren't ready for that. How could you ever be ready for that? But in ministry, over four miscarriages, lots of pain. And that's just the past 11 years. And sometimes you'll say, you know, I'm not really sure why I'm going through this. Jesus is confusing to me. But he's not absent. A lot of us were frustrated like Mary. Jesus, I've been looking everywhere for you. Can't you see that I'm looking for you? And you're just like chilling and you're not even apologetic. Where have you been in my life? I mean, things aren't going well in the office. Things aren't going well at home. My marriage is hurting. My kids are hurting, they're astray. Things are not good in my family, people are sick. Things are not good in the church. People don't like me, and I don't like them. Why do you treat me this way? Where have you been? A lot of us are like that. Things aren't going well, I'm so anxious. I've been looking for you. Aren't you supposed to be there? I've been looking for you here. Where are you? You're not here. 
How do you get over that? Remember, Mary, she'd been looking for Jesus three days. But after Jesus died, his disciples, his friends, they all lost Jesus for three days too. And they're both just in despair and anxious. But God worked through that, didn't he? In a way that nobody would have ever conceived. Through that despair, God brought redemption. Through that sorrow, God brought salvation. What did that tell us? Be patient. Trust Jesus. Don't just trust in Jesus. That's what we do when you're like 12 at some, some conference or some retreat or some, some you know, church meeting. Don't just trust in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust him at his word. Real quick, at the age of 12, this is the fifth thing. Here's Jesus at the age of 12 in his youth. He's already clinging to the Father. Who are you clinging to right now? What are you clinging to right now? Jesus, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be here? Where are you? Can we say that about you? Are you learning under the Father? Apprenticing under the Father? Understanding the meaning of things in your life, the deeper meaning of what you're undergoing and experiencing in your life, the meaning of church, the meaning of God's word? Are you walking with the Father, delighting in the Father, Him delighting in you, developing a special and intense relationship with the Father? Does the gospel move you so deeply, so powerfully, that it's like being trained and apprenticing under your father at his house? Is he Lord in your life? Lastly, well, then how are we supposed to respond? Verse 51. How are we supposed to respond? But his mother Mary treasured all these things in her heart. In other words, she didn't quite get everything, but what she did get, what she did understand, she savored. And she treasured it as truth. She planted it deep in her life. And she kind of was able to piece things together over time. She let it shape her. She stored it away. She trusted that it'll make sense. See, when you have a treasure, that's your security in the ancient times. They didn't have banks down back then. No banks back then. What you did was, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. Why would you find a treasure in a field? You know why? Because they didn't have banks. So you dug a field right? You put your treasure in there, your most precious valuables, you covered it up, but of course your house would burn down. As long as you had that treasure, how do you feel? You're good. You see? As long as you have that treasure, you're good. That treasure is your security. No matter what happens in your life on the outside, above ground, below ground, you're secure. See that? That treasure has to be buried deep, As long as you have that treasure, you know there's your confidence, there's your joy, there's your comfort, there's your relief. You need to do that with what you know about Jesus. Stop looking at the ways that Jesus is not working for you. Maybe he wasn't meant to work for you. And start burying the truth about what you know about Jesus. Treasure it. When you treasure something, what do you do? You protect it. You defend it. It becomes a source of your confidence, a source of your joy. You become, it helps you be resilient when you go through some stuff because as long as you're like, oh, still there, as long as I have that, I'm secure. And the author, Luke, I mean, masterful, he says what? This is Jesus as God's son. You can be his children. Let that truth shape you.
Store it up. I want you to treasure it. It's an incredible intimacy, an incredible access. It's incredible power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he was raised to life by that spirit. We have that spirit of God dwelling in us. Treasure it. Luke is setting us up for the rest of the account. He's saying it's all true. Treasure it. Don't let what you don't understand about Jesus, don't let what you don't get mess up what you get. Mess up what you understand. And if you treasure it, if you plant it deep, if you savor it, you're going to grow. That last verse says what? He's going to grow in favor and stature with you. He's going to grow in you. His grace is going to shape you. We have a very tangible way of practicing that today through the communion. Let's pray as we come to the table.